Book four, chapter three of the Cathedral by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three, Prelude to Battle. That night he slept well and soundly, and in the morning woke tranquil and refreshed. His life seemed suddenly to have taken a new turn. As he lay there and watched the sunlight run through the lattices like strands of pale-colored silk, it seemed to him that he was through the worst. He did what he had not done for many days, allowed the thought of his wife to come and dwell with him. He went over many of their past years together, and, nodding his head, decided that he had been often to blame. Then the further thought of what she had done, of her adultery, of her last letter, these, like foul black water, came sweeping up and darkened his mind. No more, no more. He must do as he had done. Think only of Pybus. Fight that, win his victory, and then turn to what lay behind. But the sunlight no longer danced for him. He closed his eyes, turned on his side, and prayed to God out of his bewilderment. After breakfast he started out. A restless urgency drove him forth. The chapter meeting, at which the new incumbent of Pybus was to be chosen, was now only three days distant, and all the work in connection with that was completed, but Brandon could not be still. Some members of the chapter he had seen over and over again during the last month, and had pressed Rex Forsyth's claims upon them without ceasing, but this thing had become a symbol to him now, a symbol of his fight with Ronder, of his battle for the cathedral, of his championship behind that, of the whole cause of Christ's church. It seemed to him that if he were defeated now in this thing, it would mean that God himself had deserted him. At the mere thought of defeat his heart began to leap in his breast, and the flags of the pavement to run before his eyes. But it could not be. He had been tested, like Job, every plague had been given to him to prove him true, but this last would shout to the world that his power was gone, and that the cathedral that he loved had no longer a place for him. And then, and then, he would not, he must not look. At the top of the high street he met Ryle the precentor. There had been a time when Ryle was terrified by the archdeacon. That time was not far distant, but it was gone. Nevertheless, even though the archdeacon were suddenly old and sick and unimportant, you never could tell that he might say something to somebody that it would be unpleasant to have said. Politeness all the way round was Ryle's motto, and a very safe one, too. Moreover, Ryle, when he could rise above his alarm for the safety of his own position, was a kindly man, and it really was sad to see the poor archdeacon, so pale and tired, the scratch on his cheek even now not healed, giving him a strangely battered appearance. And how would Ryle have liked Mrs. Ryle to leave him? And how would he feel if his own son, Anthony, aged at present five, ran away with the daughter of a publican? And how, above all, would he feel did he know that the whole town was talking about him and saying, Poor precentor! But perhaps the archdeacon did not know. Strange the things that people did not know about themselves, and at that thought the precentor went goose-fleshy all over, because of the things that at that very moment people might be saying about him, and he knowing none of them. 
all this passed very swiftly through ryle's mind and was quickly strangled by hearing brandon utter in quite his old knock-you-down-if-you-don't-get-out-of-my-way voice ah ryle out early this morning i hope you're not planning any more new-fangled musical schemes for us ah well if the archdeacon were going to take that sort of tone with him ryle simply wasn't going to stand it why should he to-day isn't six months ago that's all right archdeacon he said stiffly ronder and i go through a good deal of the music together now he's very musical you know everyone seems quite satisfied that ought to get him my mention of ronder's name at the same time ryle didn't wish to seem to have gone over to the other camp altogether and he was just about to say something gently deprecatory of ronder when to his astonishment he perceived that brandon simply hadn't heard him at all and then the archdeacon took his arm and marched with him down the high street with regard to this pibus business precentor he was saying the matter now will be settled in another three days i hope every one realizes the extreme seriousness of this audacious plot to push a heretic like this man wistons into the place i'm sure that every one does realize it there can be no two opinions about it of course at the same time how very uncomfortable there had been a time when the precentor would have been proud indeed to walk down the high street arm and arm with the archdeacon but that time was past the high street was crowded any one might see them they would take it for granted that the precentor was of the archdeacon's party and to be seen thus affectionately linked with the archdeacon just now when his family affairs were in so strange a disorder when he himself was behaving so oddly when as it was whispered at the jubilee fair he had engaged in a scuffle of a most disreputable kind the word drink was mentioned ryle tried ever so gently to disengage his arm brandon's hand was of steel this seems to me the archdeacon was continuing a most critical moment in our cathedral's history if we don't stand together now we-we the archdeacon's hand relaxed his eyes wandered ryle detached his arm how strange the man was why there was samuel hogg on the other side of the street he had taken his hat off and was smiling how uncomfortable how unpleasant to be mixed in this kind of encounter how mrs ryle would dislike it if she knew but his mind was speedily taken off his own affairs he was conscious of the archdeacon standing at his full height his eyes as he afterwards described it a thousand times bursting from his head then before you could count two the archdeacon was striding across the street it was a sunny morning people going about their ordinary business, everyone smiling and happy. Suddenly Ryle saw the archdeacon stop in front of Hogg, himself started across the street, urged he knew not by what impulse, saw Hogg's ugly sneering face, saw the archdeacon's arm shoot out, catch Hogg one, two terrific blows in the face, saw Hogg topple over like a heap of clothes falling from their peg, was in time to hear the archdeacon crying out you dirty spy you'll set upon me from behind would you afraid to meet me face to face are you take that then and that and then shout it's daylight it's daylight now stand up and face me you coward the next thing of which the terrified ryle was conscious was that people were running up from all sides they seemed to spring from nowhere he saw too how hogg the blood streaming from his face lay there on his back not attempting to move 
Some were bending down behind him, holding his head. Others had their hands about Brandon, holding him back. Errand boys were running, people were hurrying from the shops, voices raised on every side, a constable slowly crossed the street. Ryle slipped away. Joan had gone out at once after breakfast that morning to the little shop, Miss Milligan's, in the little street behind the precincts, to see whether she could not get some of the really fresh fruit that only Miss Milligan seemed able to obtain. She was for some little time in the shop, because Miss Milligan always had a great deal to say about her little nephew Benji, who was at the school as a day-boy, and was likely to get a scholarship, and was just now suffering from boils. Joan was a good listener, and a patient, so that it was quite late, after ten o'clock, as she hurried back. Just by the Arden Gate Ellen Stiles met her. "'Oh, you poor child!' she cried. "'Aren't you at home? I was just hurrying up to see whether I could be of any sort of help to you.' "'Any help?' echoed Joan, seeing at once, in the nodding blue plume in Ellen's hat, foreboding of horrible disaster. "'What? Haven't you heard?' cried Ellen, pitying from the bottom of her heart the child's white face and terrified eyes. "'No! What? Oh, tell me quickly what has happened! To father?' "'I don't know exactly myself,' said Ellen. "'That's what I was hurrying up to find out. "'Your father, he's had some sort of fight with that horrible man Hogg in the high street. "'No, I don't know, but wait a minute.' Joan was gone, scurrying through the precincts, the paper bag with the fruit clutched tightly to her. Ellen Stiles stared after her. Her eyes were dim with kindness. There was nothing now that she would not do for that girl and her poor father.' knocked down to the ground they were and ellen championed them wherever she went and now this drink or madness perhaps both poor man poor man and that child scarcely out of the cradle with all this on her shoulders ellen would do anything for them she would go round later in the day and see how she could be useful she turned away it was ronder now who was up and a little pulling down would do him no sort of harm there were a few little things she was longing herself to tell him, a few home-truths. Then, halfway down the high street, she met Julia Preston, and didn't they have a lot to say about it all? Meanwhile, Joan, in another moment, was at her door. What had happened? Oh, what had happened? Had he been brought back dying and bleeding? Had that horrible man set upon him there in the high street, while everyone was about? Was the doctor there, Mr. Puddyfoot? would there perhaps have to be an operation this would kill her father the disgrace she let herself in with her latch-key and stood in the familiar hall everything was just as it had always been the clocks ticking she could hear the cathedral organ faintly through the wall the drawing-room windows were open and she could hear the birds singing at the sun out there in the precincts everything as it always was she could not understand gladys appeared from the kitchen "'Oh, Gladys, here's the fruit. Has father come in?' "'I don't know, miss. You haven't heard him?' "'No, miss. I've been upstairs, helping with the beds.' "'Oh, thank you, Gladys.' The terror slipped away from her. Then it was all right. Ellen Stiles had, as usual, exaggerated. After all, she had not been there. She had heard it only at second hand. She hesitated for a moment, then went to the study door. Outside she hesitated again then she went in to her amazement her father was sitting just as he had always sat at his table 
he looked up when she entered there was no sign upon him of any trouble his face was very white stone white and it seemed to her that for months past the colour had been draining from it and now at last all colour was gone a man wearing a mask she could fancy that he would put up his hands and suddenly slip it from him and lay it down upon the table the eyes stared through it alive coloured restless well joan what is it she stammered uh, nothing father I, I only wanted to see whether that uh, yes is anyone wanting to see me no only someone told me that you i thought uh, you heard that i chastised a ruffian in the town you heard correctly i did he deserved what i gave him a little shiver shook her is that all you want to know isn't there anything father i can do nothing except leave me just now i'm very busy i have letters to write she went out she stood in the hall her hands clasped together what was she to do the worst that she had ever feared had occurred he was mad she went into the drawing-room where the sun was blazing as though it would set the carpet on fire what was she to do what ought she to do should she fetch puttyfoot or some older woman like mrs cumbermere who would be able to advise her oh no she wanted no one there who would pity him she felt a longing urgent desire to keep him always with her now away from the world in some corner where she could cherish and love him and allow no one to insult and hurt him but madness to her girlish inexperience this morning's act could be nothing but madness there in the middle of the high street with everyone about to do such a thing the disgrace of it why now they could never stay in polchester this was worse than everything that had gone before how they would all talk canon ronder all of them and how pleased they would be at that she clenched her hands and drew herself up as though she were defying the whole of polchester they should not laugh at him they should not dare but meanwhile what immediately was she to do it wasn't safe to leave him alone now that he had gone so far as to knock someone down in the principal street what might he not do what would happen if he met canon ronder oh why had this come what had they done to deserve this what had he done when he had always been so good she seemed for a little distracted she could not think her thoughts would not come clearly she waited staring into the sun and the colour quietness came to her her life was his now nothing counted in her life but that if they must leave polchester she would go with him wherever he must go and care for him johnny for one terrible instant he seemed to stand a figure of flame outside there on the sun-drenched grass outside yes always outside until her father did not need her any more then suddenly she wanted johnny so badly that she crumpled up into one of the old armchairs and cried and cried and cried she was very young life ahead of her seemed very long yes she cried her heart out and then she went upstairs and washed her face and wrote to falk she would not telegraph until she was quite sure that she could not manage it by herself the wonderful morning changed to a storm of wind and rain such a storm down in the basement cook could scarcely hear herself speak as she said to gladys it was what you must expect now they were slipping into autumn and before you knew why there would be winter 
nothing odder than the sudden way the seasons took you but cook didn't like storms in that house them precinct houses they're that old they'd fall on top of you as soon as whistle trefuses for her part she'd always thought this house queer and it wasn't any the less queer since all these things have been going on in it it was at this point that the grocery boy arrived and supposed they'd heard all about it by that time all about what why the archdeacon knocking samuel ogg down in the high street that very morning then indeed you could have knocked cook down as she said with a whisper collapsed her so that she had to sit down and take a cup of tea the kettle being luckily on the boil gladys had to sit down and take one too and there they sat the grocer's boy dismissed in the darkening kitchen their heads close together and starting at every hiss of the rain upon the coals the house hung heavy and dark above them mad that's what he must be and going mad these past ever so many months and such a fine man too but knocking people down in the street and m such a man for his own dignity m an archdeacon too had any one ever heard in their lies of an archdeacon doing such a thing well that settled cook she'd been in the house ten solid years but at the end of the month she'd be off to sit in the house with a madman not she adultery and all the talk had been enough but she had risked her good name and all just for the sake of that poor young thing upstairs but madness no that was another pair of shoes now gladys was peculiar she'd given her notice but hearing this she suddenly determined to stay that poor miss joan poor little worm so young and innocent shut up alone with her mad father gladys would see her through why gladys cried the cook what will your young feller you're walkin' with say if he don't like it ye can lump it said gladys lord ow this house does rattle all the afternoon of that day brandon sat never moving from his study table he sat exultant some of the shame had been wiped away he could feel again the riotous happiness that had surged up in him as he struck that face felt it yield before him saw it fade away into dust and nothingness that face that had for all these months been haunting him at last he had banished it and with it had gone those other leering faces that had for so long kept him company his room was dark and it was always in the dark that they came to him hogs the drunken painters that old woman's in the dirty dress and to-day they did not come if they came he would treat them as he had treated hog that was the way to deal with them his heart was bad fluttering stampeding pounding and then dying away he walked about the room that he might think less of it never mind his heart destroy his enemies that's what he had to do these men and women who were the enemies of himself his town and his cathedral suddenly he thought that he would go out he got his hat and his coat and went into the rain he crossed the green and let himself into the cathedral by the st margaret chapel door as he had so often done before the cathedral was very dark and he stumbled about knocking against pillars and hassocks he was strange here too it was as though he didn't know the place he got into the middle of the nave and positively he didn't know where he was a faint green light glimmered in the east end there were chairs in his way he stood still listening he was lost he would never find his way out again his cathedral and he was lost figures were moving everywhere they jostled him and said nothing the air was thick and hard to breathe 
here was the black bishop's tomb he let his fingers run along the metalwork how cold it was his hand touched the cold icy beard his hand stayed there he could not remove it his fingers stuck he tried to cry out and he could say nothing an icy hand gauntleted descended upon his and held it he tried to scream he could not he shouted his voice was a whisper he sank upon his knees he fainted slipping to the ground like a man tired out there half an hour later lawrence found him end of book four chapter three